0: Hi, just before we begin, I wanted to take a short minute to talk to you about how you can get your hands in something new from the Welsh History Podcast. Thanks to Tee Public, we have a new online store from t-shirts, stickers, hats, and everything in between. You can find them there, so have a look around, and you can do that at teepublic.com forward slash stores forward slash Welsh dash history dash podcast thanks everybody and on with the show Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 150, Sundogs and Vengeance. In the days after Wakefield, the entire situation was still very much in flux. Far from creating a peaceful end, the death and gruesome revenge against the Duke of York had left his younger son, Edward, Earl of March, very much alive and likely out for vengeance as he massed forces in Ludlow. Edward was eighteen years old, and even at that age, was considered a very tall and large person. He was six foot four, considerable height and presence, and most importantly, he was furious. In Wales, the Earl of Wiltshire, James Butler, arrived from Ireland, and joined. With him were Irish, French, and Welsh troops, led by Jasper Tudor, which included someone we have mentioned in a lot of the recent podcasts, Owen Tudor, his father. These forces were marching towards Hereford, a town all too familiar with attacks from Wales. Obviously, the preparations that had begun in protecting Wales from the Orcist invasion had allowed the Lancastrians to move freely and made it so that the southern part of England was still under threat. While this was happening, Margaret and her Scottish allies and northern lords moved south the twenty thousand strong army was threatening to take back london and fear gripped the Yorkists. with the tudors massing in the west and the queen in the north on a triumphal march it left edward in a bit of a pickle he needed to stop one of these forces and the north was likely the most dangerous to his position but Yorkist supporters in london used the threat of foreigners scots irish and particularly the french as a way to drum up nationalist support against this, in quotes, invading force. The queen, of course, needed to free her husband, and the only way she could claim legitimacy for her son as heir was to rescue Henry VI, who was still in the hands of the enemy. In the early part of 1461, knowing that he had to face both of these parties, Edward made a decision that he needed to avoid these two groups from meeting up. If the Tudors combined their forces with the Queen's, then it would be the Yorkists who would flee London, and all advantage that they had had over the past few months would be gone, and the Tudors, for their part, must have felt that they had the Yorkists on the run. On February 2nd, 1461, on a road from Aberystwyth to London, the armies of the Tudors in Wiltshire, who had met just east of the Welsh border, combined to march towards Hereford. The battle, which would come thanks to Edward's decision, was called the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. In the Yorkist camp, you have to wonder how on earth there was any morale. Their leadership and obvious heir were killed, as obviously Edward's older brother Edmund was one of those who had been executed, and little was left to oppose the royalists and their retinue. But if there is one thing we have learned over the past few months recounting the War of the Roses is that neither side would give in, no defeat was too terrible, no crushing victory or soul-stealing defeat was enough to end the animosity as long as there was major players on both sides and an army to support them. And yes, it would take the elimination of almost all of these major players to bring the fighting to an end. Edward had the upper hand in this battle because He had the advantage in men, and more importantly, in experience with battle hardened soldiers, as we've mentioned previously. In his leadership group were old enemies of the Tudors, Walter Devereux and the Herbert brothers, who had been enemies for over ten years now in South Wales. Once again, the Orchard's troops were much better and more experienced, so with both things at his command, the younger leader was more than a match for the Earl of Pembroke, Jasper Tudor, and his allies. The morning of Candlemas was both clear and cold. Edward and his forces looked to the sky, and it was there that they saw an optical illusion known as a perihelion, or as sundogs. This is where the sun appears to split into multiple versions of itself. It's a very interesting thing if you look at it, and it only happens because of certain conditions. Sun dogs are commonly caused by refraction and the scattering of light from plate-shaped hexagonal ice crystals either suspended high and in cold, curious or curiostratus clouds, or drifting in freezing moist air at low levels as diamond dust, as it's called. So effectively what it does is it acts like a mirage, creating an appearance of, in this case, three separate suns in parallel to each other. So that alone points to how cold the day must have been, because you don't get ice crystals in a weather which is generally warm, and so it's a condition that has to happen in the winter, and has to happen in very cool to cold conditions. Immediately amongst Edward's troops, it was seen as an ill omen, but Edward, ever the canning leader, turned it on its head by proclaiming that this was the Trinity shining down on them. Rather than a sign of impending doom, it was a sign of divine intervention. Edward theatrically got down on the ground in front of his men and gave thanks for this sign of divinity. He also added the sun in splendor to his badge. This was a momentous event, which seemed to happen right before a decisive battle and one that was seen as a sign of fortune in later life. What Jasper and company thought of it of course were never told and because it adds to the overall story you kind of understand why the lancastrians arrived after a forced land march trying to meet up with the queen so they had rushed across wales to do such thus they were ill prepared for battle not and, well rested and while not necessarily exhausted They would be worn down after all this marching in the middle of winter months through the valleys and mountains of mid-Wales. Meanwhile, the Yorkists were well-provisioned and rested. This allowed them to determine the location of the battlefield and all the advantages needed. The two sides collided as the combined royalists marched towards Hereford, and the mercenaries in the Wiltshire forces on the right made immediate progress as Jasper tried to hold the middle against Edward. Unfortunately for the Tudors, Owen and his left flank started to collapse, as the 60-year-old elder statesman was unable to hold against the archers. The Yorkist strategy was to set up archers on the front row to attack with the advantage of the high ground that they had held, and they were able to strike at will at the front ranks of Owen's troops. The footmen leading the charge were not as well armored and, because of the hail of arrows, were sent them either to take flight or to their deaths. Then, as the arrows ended, Edward ordered his forces to charge that flank. At that, Owen's troops completely crumbled. With Edward breaking through on the left, the rest of Jasper's line started to crumble, and he and his allies were then in a state where they were forced to flee. It is estimated that the Tudors lost 4,000 men in the battle, and worse yet, Owen Tudor was captured along with a number of nobles, and they were taken to Hereford and immediately executed. Edward was in no mood for clemency, or possibly using Owen as a bargaining chip. He wanted revenge for the death of his father and brother, and this old man was a symbol of that vengeance. So in February 1461, Owen Tudor, former husband to the Dowager Queen of England, had his head chopped off and put on a spike at Hereford. Mortimer's cross had one lasting effect on this war. The idea of only punishing the nobles was now over. The men under Edward butchered as many of the opposite soldiers as they could. Few were spared, and the death toll here was around the same number as in all of the previous battles put together. The escape of Jasper and the Earl of Wiltshire may have been a point of concern for Edward, but worse for him was that the Lancastrian side continued to move south, so Edward could not influence the next major battle in the way that he may have wanted to. Jasper, for his part, fled back to Pembroke, beaten once again by his Yorkist enemies, defeated by men who killed his brother, and now had executed his father. He was the only survivor of the Tudor clan, which meant he was now the only protector of his nephew, the four-year-old heir, Henry. In a letter to his kinsman, Roger Pulston, dated February 25th, 1461, he expressed his anger over what had happened, saying, "'And suppose that ye have well in your remembrance the great dishonour and rebuke that we and ye now late have by traitors March and Herbert.' with their affinities, as in putting my father, your kinsman, to death, and their traitorous demeaning. Needless to say, Jasper was making it very clear to Roger, who at the time was in charge of Denby Castle, what he thought of these Yorkists and what they had done. He went further to ask for additional assistance. We purpose with the might of our lord, and the assistance of you and our other kinsmen and friends, within a short time to avenge, With your good advice therein, we pray you to ascertain us in all haste possible, as our especially trust is in you. So Edward's revenge had created a different layer of bloodlust, as now Jasper wanted revenge and was seeking vengeance himself. Broccolini and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com Welsh History Pod 50 and use the code Welsh History Pod 50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code Welsh History Pod 50. At FactorMeals.com slash WelshHistoryPod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? Unfortunately for Jasper, it would be a revenge that would only come after Edward was dead, and after much of the world had changed dramatically, but nonetheless, Jasper was obviously furious. On February 17, 1461, the Lancastrian army met Earl Warwick at the Second Battle of St. Albans. It had been two weeks since the Tudors had been defeated, but it had allowed the Queen time to move her forces down and intercept Warwick before he could meet up with the young Edward. Warwick had brought Henry VI with him, whether as a bargaining ship or to give his side a sense that they were loyalists fighting traitors, were not entirely sure. The battle this time was both larger in scope, and saw Warwick get flanked by the Lancastrians as they forced him out of Dunstable. The Yorkists, as had happened previously to the Lancastrians, suffered a loss of firearms due to damp conditions that had rendered their gunpowder useless. After hours of battle in the town and countryside, the Yorkists were in full retreat south. Warwick fled, leaving King Henry alive and back in the hands of his wife. It was said that Henry was found protected by a pair of Yorkist knights singing to himself. Signs that Henry was not capable of carrying on any sort of fight were pretty obvious at this stage. Prince Edward, now officially the Crown Prince once more, was knighted by his father, as were several others who had fought for the Lancastrians. Even as this victory, it was not without problems. After pillaging their way to London, Queen Margaret and her forces were barred entry by the people of London, who were solidly in the Yorkist camp. This led the Queen, with no easy access to the city and continued animosity of the people there, meant that she had to remove herself, and the idea of a siege was effectively out of the question. The loss of Tudor's forces at Mortimer's Cross and the hostility of London to the royal party meant that simply taking back control would be impossible for the Queen. She had to move north. Also, her Scottish allies had already started deserting with their plunder. So instead of Margaret, it was Warwick and Edward who, on March 2nd, were the first ones to enter London and were met with joy by the city's population, a sign that things were spiraling out of the Lancastrian hands. Having lost possession of the king, but in remaining in control of the most important city in the kingdom, the Yorkists were left with very few good options. First, they could negotiate with the Queen, a very unlikely prospect now. Second, they could declare their own candidate, in much the way Henry IV overthrew Richard II. It should come as no surprise that the Yorkists made the second choice. Edward was proclaimed Edward IV, the true King of England this meant that the only way this could now end would be with the death of a king or at the very least one side being deposed the lancastrian forces were in retreat to the north and west so if the queen wanted to see her son on the throne the other king of england would need to be removed the victory at st albans had the opposite effect as the yorkists were now the ones who were emboldened while the lancastrians were the ones now caught on the back foot The Lancastrian lords began to call in favors. Men like Jasper Tudor, as we pointed out, reached out to various relations to gain their trust and obedience in this time of chaos. They needed to regroup fast, otherwise things would go wrong and spiral out of control in short order. The queen called her allies to join her and her son, so the men from North England, Wales, and Scotland once again gathered. Estimates range that as possibly as high as thirty thousand men joined her in york to repel the armies of edward the fourth who were coming north and had about twenty thousand men prior to the battle edward offered an amnesty to any lancastrian supporter who renounced henry this was done mostly to try and win over the common people as edward gave no such offer to the nobility as you can imagine if you're in the nobility on either side, your lot is already cast, and little will change that. The main Yorkist army left London in late March to confront the Queen. Lord Suffolk and Fitzwalter reached Ferrybridge on March 28th, and had started to rebuild that bridge which had been destroyed previously. When the light cavalry of Lord Clifford, the Lancastrian Lord, collided with them in a battle that saw the yorkists initially seem to retreat however as they were retreating edward sent more reinforcements to the bridge and crucially flanked the northern side of the bridge with these two forces squeezing clifford was forced to flee and because of this he would then be ambushed once again and die to an arrow the fight was the first in a string of bad news for the lancastrians on Sunday, March 29th, a blizzard came rolling in and made conditions even worse. But by 9 a.m., the two sides had positioned themselves in a field south of Towton. The battle for England was now on. The battle was one of the bloodiest in English history. It went on for ten hours during a winter storm that blew into the faces of the Lancastrians, driving snow at them as arrows fell. And if you've ever walked in snow where the snow is blowing at you, it's very difficult to see because it, it causes your eyes to tear up and, and you basically what ends up happening is whether by design or by accident, you end up closing your eyes to it. And of course, that leads to you not seeing things coming at you, which is also problematic, needless to say, in a battle like this. And because of all of this, The other thing that was effective was the development of hand cannons, which were basically the early pistols, and real cannons and other artillery, which were fired off as well. So adding to all of this carnage, you have bullets and cannonballs hitting everywhere, and these new instruments of destruction, while hardly reliable, were at times of course likely to kill the wielder as much as it were the people they were attacking they still caused havoc eventually somerset leading the lancastrian centre moved his men down to attack the Yorkist hand to hand and the real fight was on fighting in this era up close and personal combined with a winter storm made the surface likely something appalling blood and gore would be everywhere and one of the actual hazards of the battle was to slip between the blood, ice, and misery, only to then get overwhelmed because of it. Edward's command to give no quarter to the nobility also did little to save the common soldiers. The Lancastrians' lines started to come apart by early afternoon, and folded in almost on itself. Getting twisted so that some were fighting in the opposite direction of where they started in the morning, they were then pushed into the bloody marsh at the base of one hill, meanwhile having archers who were standing at the top of it firing down on them eventually the line broke and the lancastrians bigger army with more nobles collapsed and started to flee this allowed the orcas cavalry the opportunity to rake lancastrian soldiers desperate to make their escape as they went north their previous work at disabling the bridge back in Taunton meant that they could not flee and had to swim across what was a freezing river to try and escape and many more ended up drowning or freezing in the water. The death and destruction was the reward of all of this battle, and at the end of the day, thousands of men had died. According to a chronicler of the day, 28,000 men died in the area south of Taunton. Most of the supporters of the Queen paid the price with their lives, and few were able to escape. The remaining Lancastrians fled to Scotland, escaping with their lives and little else. The disaster was now complete, the Yorkists now ruled, and Edward IV would officially be crowned in the early summer as the first Yorkist king. In the process, the clock was now ticking on the life of the Earl of Fembroke, Jasper Tudor, and he knew that he had no real choice. He had to flee with his small family or face death. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate... Everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you so much for those that are able to actually help support this podcast financially. Uh, While certainly not a requirement, it is certainly wonderful, and it does help me buy the books I need and the equipment I need to continue to make this podcast as good as I can, to do the research I need to do this. So thank you very much. Uh, If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to become a member of our Patreon community, you can do that at the patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. This
1: has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world.